Welcome to The View from the Front. This is a podcast that's mostly about military and defense news, but also includes plenty of motivation, wisdom, and history. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a nice guy who's working as hard as I possibly can to unite this country. I'm here to explain the news that you need to know while also encouraging you along the way. I strongly believe the vast majority of Americans are kind and would give you the shirt off their back. And I also believe there are plenty of dangerous politicians and media personalities who are tearing this country apart as they divide us and scare us with overhyped news. I'm hoping my little show can help counter this. I strongly believe that more unites us than divides us. And while we face great challenges as a country, America has stood together for more than 240 years. It's only by pulling our country closer together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. It's only through beliefs such as patience, kindness, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us that we're going to get through this. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the kind of optimistic beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. And with that, let's get to today's edition. This is the September 23rd edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. I do have one bit of big news before we get to the regular news. And that big news is, I just had a birthday, and I turned 45, and it didn't hit me like I was afraid it might. I think that's partly because I've been fortunate to have good health, and it's kind of silly, but I remember many years ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago, reading some Roman history about an emperor, and I don't remember which one, who at the age of like, I think it said 60-something. So in my mind, I've always thought 60-something. But this emperor, in order to lead the troops, he had to uh, be able to man all the weapons. And whoever this general or emperor, might have been a general, but whoever it was, at the age of 60, could apparently like throw a spear and handle a weapon better than all the other younger men. And they had to apparently train for hours. and, And so he could apparently train all day or simulate fight and throw a weapon and do all these things and i remember reading this like i said i don't know 10 years or so ago in my 30s and i remember thinking i will be that guy when i'm 60 i want to be the guy who can still whoop and out train and out fight dudes half my age so for me it's kind of weird it's kind of stupid it's probably something to do with like small man syndrome but that's always been important to me so Even though I turned 45, even though I've had a reconstructed shoulder with screws in it and wires, I can bench more weight than I could when I was 19. I don't have a cardio I had when I was crazy that age. I used to run cross country in high school and obviously in the Marine Corps I had to run a lot. So cardio is not as good, but I feel like I'm a better fighter. I'm kind of a martial arts freak and um, I train numerous styles all the time and it originally went to a, uh, I'm a smaller guy, 5'7 on a good day, but in high school, I was like 5'3 by my sophomore year. I think I was 5'5 five five when I was in se- a senior, but I literally graduated high school, only weighed 118 pounds, and I went to a little bit of a rougher school. So back then, I had to be into martial arts, but all my life, I've just been fascinated by martial arts, initially just to defend myself, but then as I got older, kind of getting into the, some of the living in the moment and the spiritual side and so I've studied northern style kung fu, southern style, wing chun, king uh, kempo, kaju kempo, shaolin, wugalin, kung fu. 
some Taekwondo, some Ishinru. I've got a belt in several of those different styles, but I've even tried to like combine them all into one style. So you can ask my wife. Every single day, I'm generally stretching and um, practicing and lifting. Like I said, I'm kind of a a um, odd person in that fitness is my drug in life. I uh, don't drink, so I pretty much just lift. I like to write. I like to read. And so I only say all that because I turned 45, but I thought, you know, Stan, about 15 years from hitting the 60, and you're well on your way to doing what 10-plus years ago you said you would do which is be a badass at 60-something. So there you go. It's kind of silly. Probably uh, not the most mature concept, but I still actually have this picture of uh, Sylvester Stallone at 70, and dude looks like a, just a stud, you know? And um, I'm like, man, that's going to that's gonna be me. That's my goal. Got to stay healthy. I want to look good. It's probably proof of vanity or something, but there you go. I thought I'd share a little bit about me, but I turned 45, and so... Uh, you know, you you guys, if you're sending big checks or anything, just send me an email, I'll tell you my address, but I uh, thought I'd share that. I did turn 45, and now you know I'm a martial arts freak, which people who follow me on Twitter, or who have followed me for a while, you'll probably had hints to it. I wrote some blog posts back in like 2012, 2013 about it. Also, one of my characters, Danny Akov, who's a Force Recon Marine, I mentioned in it that he's a black belt in Ishinru, and I got uh, up to green belt in Ishinru, got all the all the books on it, uh, learned, I think, eight of the ten um, katas, depending on if you're counting the weapons katas, but uh, I got pretty good at Ishinru, and like I said, I've studied several styles, but what ends up happening inevitably is I overthink everything, and I will know that there's like another style that has a better block or has this or a better way to do that, and so I'm always trying to combine them. And uh, I think it was simpler when you had just like a local sensei. There wasn't the internet or YouTube videos that showed why some block you learned wasn't the best. You would just focus on that. There wasn't the widespread knowledge. And of course, back in the day, people didn't share very much about martial arts. They would basically just teach you these katas, which took a long time to learn. And the moves were hidden inside of them. So most people gave up and only those who were sincere in their devotion to the art would make it very far but anyway i've uh, railed on about that long enough thanks for uh, letting me do that and we will get to the news now so we will begin this episode with russia there's been a ton of news regarding russia and ukraine obviously the biggest news was vladimir putin announced that he's going to call up roughly 300,000 reservists to the military that was huge news, and I got several things on that uh, that I wanted to share. But he also, during that announcement, did the classic Vladimir Putin move, which is he again threatened to use nuclear weapons if necessary. And so, again, the Western media freaked out. And so, again, I just want to briefly address this. And this time, I'm not just going to say the things that I believe. I'm going to share some things from people that I respect and what they believe. First, I'm quoting from a interview that President Joe Biden did. This was quoted in the New York Times, where under the headline, Biden threatens a consequential response if Russia uses unconventional weapons. And it quotes Biden as saying, you think I would tell you if I knew exactly what it would be? Of course I'm not going to tell you. It'll be consequential. 
They'll become more of a pariah in the world than they've ever been, they being Russia, and depending on the extent of what they do will determine what response would occur. His warning was in response to an interviewer's question, not in light of any newly released intelligence suggesting that the threat had changed. So that story was in the New York Times, and I believe they quoted that from the uh, 60 Minutes interview, although I didn't watch the entire 60 Minutes interview with uh, President Biden. So that's the president's response on the issue. As I've said in at least two different episodes, might have been more than that, but definitely in a couple of recent ones, I've explained that um, I don't think there's any way it's going to happen or incredibly low chance, even though Western media will often blow it up big. But I've basically summarized before that um, if he wanted to, um, and he won't because he knows it's going to be his end, and that even if he tried, I'm not sure the Russian generals would obey his orders to use one. And finally, uh, I'm not convinced that we wouldn't know he, that he was about to use it through signals intelligence and that we wouldn't do something to stop it. So those have basically been my views all along. You've heard me say these in previous episodes. So I wanted to bring in a couple of expert, op- expert opinions that wasn't just Stan talking. First... We begin with the great Tom Nichols. I call him the great Tom Nichols because uh, I think the world of, of this gentleman's opinion. Uh, but he's a retired professor at the U.S. Naval War College. He has a deep history involving Russia, nuclear weapons, national security affairs. I have read two of his books, marked them up like you would not believe, and practically studied them. Uh, I think if Tom Nichols said that up was down... I would probably hesitate and believe it for a good hour or so until I checked many things to confirm the opposite. So I hold his opinion very high. I've also literally watched untold numbers of interviews with him uh, on various news outlets, and I have followed him closely on Twitter on numerous opinions for the past few years. But at any rate, I think the world of this gentleman and his expert opinion, and it is an expert opinion, but he said as an aside, which I have linked to in the source notes, that the, quote, I have nukes threat is a repeat of how Putin started the war, and it's almost a standard fallback in a Putin speech. Now, I will concede that that isn't like a all-out, he's never going to use one top tweet for evidence, but I will say, having followed uh, Mr. Nichols for a long time, that uh, he has not been sounding the alarm too much about um, the use of nuclear weapons, so he is a everyone breathe and relax um, type of gentleman regarding nuclear weapons, if I'm allowed to say so, and if I'm wrong, I think you'll probably tell me, but I think I can say that's probably a good summary of his position, so that's Point one. Point two comes from Major John Spencer. He spent 25 years in the Army. He went from private to sergeant first class and then from second lieutenant to major. He's done combat deployments and he has become a serious analyst in the past, you know, year plus or more, probably before that, but at least he came on my radar within the last year. And there's not much that he has said that I disagree with. I wanted to share something he said. Mr. Spencer said, Putin threatens again the world with his nuclear weapons. The number one interest of any nation or even evil dictator is survival. Use of nuclear, biological, chemical, 
weapons would end the Putin regime and Russian Federation as it is today. And he called it a bluff. Put an exclamation point on the bluff, actually. So that's what uh, retired Major John Spencer said about it. Now we will go to point three. Point three is comes from a Washington Post story. I've got it linked in the source notes, which of course you can find on my Substack, stanormitchell.substack.com. And in that story, I just want to quote three different small parts from that story. Uh, the story talks about how the White House has attempted to cultivate what is known in the nuclear deterrence world as strategic ambiguity, which is you don't say that if they do this, we will do this. You leave it a little vague and you imply that you don't know how bad this is going to be if you do that. So obviously strategic ambiguity, which is kind of what on the earlier part of this episode with the interview with President Biden, he leaves a little bit of vagueness there. So the strategic ambiguity is the policy. Um, and also from that story, the Washington Post says that the State Department has been involved in private communications with Moscow, but officials would not say who delivered the messages or the scope of their content. And then finally, it said that Biden administration officials have emphasized that this isn't the first time the Russian leadership has threatened to use nuclear weapons. We all know that, of course, since the war began on February 12th. And that this is the key thing I wanted to share. There is no indication Russia is moving its nuclear weapons in preparation for an imminent strike. And so there you go. I have said that I believed we would have some knowledge through signals or other intelligence that the Russians might do something before they did it. And finally, I found proof of what I suspected all along. A Washington Post article where they've interviewed several sources on background. I've also, and I sometimes have to say things in ways that I've just, from constantly keeping up with foreign policy, because I've been a nut about it since probably at least 20 years when I used to carry a rifle and worry about these things, but we know from numerous stories that there is a lot of dialogue through multiple levels, both at the State Department and through the military. We know recently that the chairman, Mark Milley, was literally talking to a general in China's military, telling them not to overreact as we went through our transition two years ago with President Trump. And a lot of people called him, I don't want to say the words they said, but he was criticized for that. Whether it was right or wrong, I'm not going to get into that now. But we know that there are channels between both, like I said, the State Department and the military. I don't know who's responsible for launching a weapon from Russia. I'm quite confident that whoever that person or persons is slash are, that they probably have received some communication from American senior folks and been informed of what their their best options might be if if something unwise were to come down the, the pike, so to speak. So, again, I'm I'm kind of spitballing to some degree, but I'm also not spitballing because I know these things happened. I know they happen based on, as I said, previous history, and now we're once again seeing that it's starting to come out in the media that we've got a firmer control on this than the public would be. So, again, my bigger point in this is I think the Western media loves to try to scare folks so that they can get eyeballs 
But I also, as I've said in a previous episode, think that's very dangerous because it leads Americans to want to tune out because they feel powerless and they feel scared. And so it's irresponsible for the American media to be that way. And frankly, there is no way that we are in anywhere near as level of a chance of a nuclear weapon being used as we were in like the 60s and in other decades during the Cold War. So it's just frustrating to me when situations get blown out of control. But again, I've talked enough about this. I probably will never talk about this again because I'm tired of talking about whether Russia might use a nuclear weapon or not. The answer is they're most likely not, period. Now, let's talk about the mobilization that Vladimir Putin announced. I've got a New York Times story linked, although a lot of media was reporting on this, that since the announcement, uh, and I'll quote this part from the New York Times story, waves of Russian men who had previously thought they were safe from being forced to the front lines have realized they could not count on staying out of their country's invasion of Ukraine. Some have left the country in a rush, paying rising prices to catch flights to countries such as Armenia, Georgia, Montenegro, and Turkey that allow them to enter without visas. And then I've shared, got a couple of photos in the airports, and it's crazy because you see these two photos, and honest to goodness, there's barely a woman in them. Um, they were all young men of fighting age, look like strong lads, and um, they seem to have no desire to uh, go fight Vladimir Putin's war. So got the photos there if you want to see them in the source notes. I'm betting you have seen them in other media already, so you probably don't need to see that, but did want to share that. On that same point, I've got in the source notes a story from the Washington Post that talks about how Vladimir Putin is facing a lot of um, unrest because of his announced mobilization. Um, this story from the Washington Post, it says, headline is, Putin faces fury in Russia over military mobilization. And I'll read just a couple of paragraphs. As women hugged their husbands and young men boarded buses to leave for 15 days of training. Side note, 15 days, are you kidding me? Most American boot camps are at least two months to three months, but these guys get two, two weeks. So again, as women hugged their husbands and young men boarded buses to leave for 15 days of training before potentially being deployed to Russia's stumbling war effort in Ukraine, there were signs of mounting public anger. More than 1,300 people were arrested at anti-mobilization protests in cities and towns across Russia on Wednesday and Thursday in the largest public protest since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th. There are lots of videos circulating of some of these protests. I'm sure some of you guys have already seen it. But what's interesting is besides the protests, uh, the Washington Post mentions that in some cities, there were dozens of military recruitment officers that were set on fire. Uh, one of dozens. I don't want to say dozens as if 30 or 40, but at least more than a dozen or so have actually been set on fire. So uh, things are getting a little uncomfortable for Putin from those who want the war to end. But he's also kind of in a vice because there are those on the other side of it that are not happy about a hostage trade deal. I'm going to get into that in just a moment on the episode. But before we do that, so how good are these troops going to be? What will it do for the war against Ukraine? And I wanted to share a thread from an analyst 
that I thought summarized pretty well what impact these troops may have. This thread comes from Chris Owens. He's a military researcher and author, and I'll just read parts of it. And I'll begin, and it's linked in the source notes if you want to find it there. So he says, first politics. Putin was clearly under a lot of pressure to react to Russia's defeat east of Kharkiv, and that's in the Donbass region as we've talked about. This is very likely his way of responding to increasingly strident demands. In my opinion, this shows that he fears the nationalist flank more than the general public. Second, morale. As I've previously documented from Russian soldiers' accounts and intercepted phone calls published by Ukraine, many Russian soldiers are badly demoralized and want to go home. 20 to 40 percent of the men from some units have reportedly quit. But the Russian army has been making that increasingly difficult. Some soldiers have reportedly been kept in Ukraine, despite their contracts running out in May. Putin's new decree effectively bans anyone leaving, except on certain narrow grounds, of which I'll discuss more later. This move will be very bad for morale. He means the move by Putin. Soldiers whose contracts were due to expire this autumn will now be stuck in the army indefinitely. This is a big deal. A great many signed up for economic benefits not to fight and die. Then he talked about how Putin tried to talk about that this was um, the invasion was just about defense of Donbass. Um, he goes into that a bit. And so he then goes into the effectiveness, which I really wanted to share this part. The third thing, effectiveness. Russia went into this war with a Rumsfeldian lightweight army and quickly found it didn't have enough troops. The Rumsfeldian, uh, Feldian quote, refers to when we invaded Iraq the second time in 2003, I believe it was, the, uh, the generals wanted a much larger army and Rumsfeld famously wanted to like just 100,000 instead of 200,000 plus. So we went in with a small army into Iraq and that led to much of the um, instability after we initially defeated Saddam's army. So that's what he means by a Rumsfeldian lightweight army. So continuing, the impact on the ground has been clear, but a less obvious result has been a lack of rotation, allowing the troops to rest away from the front. Uh, then he talks about that there's evidence and history that if you can't rotate out, rotate out units, they quickly um, basically become ineffective. He goes into some really deep research on this from uh, some uh, from a book, uh, but I want to skip on down. Um, he talks about winter is coming. We've talked about that on previous episodes. And he said that offensive operations are likely to, likely to be at a low ebb. Both sides will be entrenching themselves within the next few weeks until the thaw comes next February to March. And he said that's not a bad time to do a rotation. He also explained something that I thought was key. He says, you also don't need to be all that well trained to defend a position. And he said Ukraine's territorial defense forces proved that last spring in the defense of Kiev. Russia's soldiers are poorly trained anyway, so giving new ones a couple of weeks basic training isn't much different. Um, and then he talked a little bit about some of the uh, other factors. I'm not really going to get into those. So he ends by saying that... In short, I see this move not so much as being about creating a brand new army for Russia, 
but as creating creating political cover for Putin and enabling him to rest and reorganize his current depleted army over the winter. So I wanted to share that thread because I think that's a pretty good summary. I think it's obviously not great news for Ukraine that there's going to be more soldiers thrown at them, but I don't know how well trained they're going to be, and it's probably mostly going to be used for defensive uses. So bad side, more soldiers are going to be thrown into the mix against Ukraine. The good side is obviously this is leading to more pressure on Putin, and I wanted to get into that just a tad and I know I'm starting to wear my welcome out on this, but, um, you know, this war in Ukraine is a big deal. And so the what I hope is one of the last faltering moves of Putin to announce this mobilization is a big deal as well. So it is important to cover it. I also put in the source notes a video from President Zelensky that in part talks about it's kind of a warning to Russian soldiers. He's actually speaking to the people to try to get around uh, Vladimir Putin and some of the state media. Now, obviously, I had talked about a few months ago that many Russians were starting to get on Telegram and other ways of trying to find out the news other than through state media. So there is a good chance that some of the Russians, a good portion of Russians, will see this message. But in it, he says, and I quote, 55,000 Russian soldiers died in this war in six months. Tens of thousands are wounded and maimed. Want more? No. Then protest. Fight back. Run away or surrender to Ukrainian captivity. These are your options if you want to survive. And I only share that little bit because a lot of analysts have talked about that some of these people peacefully protesting and getting arrested in Russia, that at some point they have to stop peacefully protesting and then actually do something. Otherwise, it doesn't doesn't change. So... It'll be interesting to see if Russian civilians begin to start becoming a little bit more, I guess, violent. I don't know any other way to say it in their protest against Russia. So on the one hand, you've got Putin, who's dealing with pressures from those who don't want to go fight, who don't support the war. But he's also facing pressures from those who are nationalist, who are fiercely pro-Russian, you know, crush the Ukrainians and the Nazis. And he has done something that has also greatly upset them as well. And that thing is a major prisoner swap. And what happened was, it goes back a bit, but essentially, obviously, Russia has some prisoners of Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has some prisoners of Russia. And there was a big deal recently where a Russian prisoner swap happened. But unfortunately for Putin, those prisoners involved folks who had defended the uh, steel plant in Mariupol who had held out for months. And the Russians really hated these people because these soldiers held out, like I said, for it was like 90 days. It was one of the most heroic almost unbelievable battles you've ever seen as these surrounded cutoff troops just refused to uh, surrender. And the Russians would send in unit after unit after unit, and they would say, we've got them all, it's cleared, and then, of course, it wouldn't be cleared, and then they'd have to try again, and they basically never took it. Finally, the Ukrainian government uh, ordered the troops to surrender. But those defenders were part of a unit called the Azov Battalion, and after they were taken in surrender or by the Russians, 
A lot of us have worried about what would happen to them because the Russians said they were going to try them, they were going to execute some of them, imprison them for life. And so a lot of people have been worried about these folks. Well, yesterday the it was announced that there was a major prison uh, prisoner swap and the Russians traded 215 Ukrainians and for that and some foreigners, but they also got for 215 Ukrainians, Ukraine sent back 55 Russians. But most importantly, they sent back a guy named Viktor Medvedchuk. And he was a leader. He was one of Putin's um, closest allies in Ukraine. He had been a guy that Putin wanted to basically install as part of a Russian government there. And so this has absolutely infuriated the Russian nationalist. It's good news for Ukraine, obviously, to get back these folks. It's great news also for many other Western company, uh, countries. There were three Britons, two Americans, also a Croatian, a Swedish national, uh, two Britons, a Moroccan. So there were some foreigners who had gone over there to fight or also work as aid workers that had been captured. They were released. And it was also, the deal was facilitated in part by Turkey and Saudi Arabia, so I don't often say the best of things about Saudi Arabia, and so it's good to see that they helped with that, and I've also been somewhat critical in the past of Turkey, although of late in the past few months, Turkey under Erdogan has been much more pro-West and less, but less like a dictator that's completely out of control. Um, so I wanted to share just one little thing about that from the Kiev Post as just an honor in honor of those defenders because of what they did will absolutely go down in history and i wanted to share just a few graphs from the kiev post about those and i start i'm gonna start right in the middle of one of the paragraphs crack troops of the azov battalion who led the long defense of mariupol's azovstal steelworks which became an icon of ukrainian resistance the defenders of Azovstal have become an example of invincibility and courage for the whole world and the worst enemies for Russia in its propaganda machine. Azov regiment soldiers and other military personnel held the Azovstal and Mariupol plant defense for three months. Under constant shelling and severe wounds, they held back the enemy to the last despite living in terrible conditions. The evacuation of military personnel from Ezovstal began on May 16th. The commanders of the units located at the plant were ordered by the Ukrainian authorities to save the lives of the personnel so the army was evacuated to territory not controlled by Ukraine but by Russia. These Ukrainian soldiers were held captive for more than four months. Some of them did not manage to return as they died as a result of the terrorist attack. I'll probably mispronounce this, but I believe it's Alanivka when Russia launched a missile attack on the isolation ward where the Ukrainian military, including the defenders of Azovstal, were located. As a reminder on that, these were the Russians literally launched a missile at a prisoner of war camp that they had troops in, or that they had Ukrainian prisoners in, and then they turned around and tried to blame the Ukrainians for launching that missile. So this was just a desperate attempt of them to kill some of these brave defenders because... What these uh, men and women did, and I believe there were some women there, um, definitely as aid workers, but even as fighters, but what these men and women did was 
incredible. By holding out so long, Russia kept having to divert uh, units that could have been used in the offense when Russia was winning the war. They kept having to send pretty good units down to try to take this place because it was embarrassing to Putin that he could not take this final part of the city. He wanted to say Mariupol was completely his, and yet he couldn't. And every now and then, the troops would even, at least in the beginning stages, exit at night from this steel plant and, and do attacks inside the city, and then they would flee back in and defend themselves. But it was embarrassing to Putin, and so he really... He probably made it almost too much of a priority. He could have just cut them off and waited until they surrendered. But the harder he tried to take them and the more generals he ordered to make sure it happened, he just got more and more enraged and more and more diverted by the entire ordeal. At the same time, the Russian people, it offended their heritage and their national, I don't know, I guess, identity that they could not take the steel plant for the life of them. They literally could not take it. And the, the steel plant was really pretty remarkable. It had underground bunkers. It had been designed to survive a nuclear strike. So it had a military capacity other than just a steel plant. It was designed for back in the Cold War, assuming that if the U.S. ever launched nuclear weapons, that people could go there to hide and could, you know, come out from there and survive that. So it was a hardened structure but the russians were very angry that they couldn't take it and now putin in this deal to get his buddy back has made a very lopsided deal and basically traded one rich guy for a bunch of very brave ukrainians and that has completely just infuriated the russian people because putin had talked so big about trying these fighters and he called them nazis and they wanted to, honestly, they wanted to execute them and imprison them and use them as like war trophies. But he has traded these folks in just to get his rich buddy back. And the Russian people aren't stupid. And so after months of, you know, building them up into this furious anger and now letting them down by trading in and showing weakness yet again after the Ukrainian offensive in Donbass to the um, east, he's now done this. And this has obviously upset some people and i wanted to share something about that real quick this comes from john hudson who covers diplomacy and national security for the washington post and he shared the following thread and it was a uh, senior state department official that said this so he called them spicy remarks and here's what john hudson says in this thread a senior state department official said the prisoner exchange with russia exposed the corrupt and self-dealing ways of putin Quote, it is telling that Putin elected to trade his crony and one of his long-term proxies in Ukraine, Medvedchuk, for the heroes of Mariupol. It was very much celebrated in Ukraine to have these valiant fighters back home and very much reviled in Moscow to see what Putin truly cares about, the official said. The official said the deal was just another example of how Putin prioritizes himself over the interest of the Russian people. Quote, even as this war is awful for Ukraine, it's awful for the Russian people. Putin has chosen his own vain imperial ambition over his people's needs. And you can see that in reaction to this conscription. Every airplane out of Russia full, people beginning to panic. So that was just, uh, I thought that was some nice additional details to 
add to what I was saying about this exchange deal. And I did post in the source notes, you can find that on my Substack, a video of the Brave Fighters being traded back to uh, Ukraine and their return. And they appear very, honestly, just underfed and just, they, they look rough, but it's relief on their faces. It's kind of hard to watch it, honestly, but what these poor folks have been through the amount of bombardment and shells that fell on that place i'm sure is just i'm so happy they're alive but i can't imagine what they went through and you know they they had very little food or water i can't imagine what they went through even in these prison camps or you know who knows how much they were tortured and being told the entire time they would soon be executed or imprisoned for life and these poor folks have you know, thought that they would never see their families again. I can't imagine what they've been through. So I'm just beyond excited, much as you as the Ukrainians are. That just I'm just ecstatic that I don't know if the right word is many or several, but that many or several of these people have survived this unbelievable ordeal and returned to their country. And I hope that in Ukrainian history and hopefully world history that they're unbelievable sacrifice and heroic defense is never forgotten because what they have done is just it's it's remarkable it is up there with really any military history as far as a, a heroic battle of just an outnumbered outgunned unit refusing to surrender for months when the russians would promise them all kinds of good things like being treated well or allowing them to go back to Ukraine, but they kept holding on. And as time passed, the Russians would increasingly change what they would offer and would say that if they didn't surrender, they would, you know, be tortured or executed. And they held out until their government told them to no longer hold out. So I'm glad they're relieved or I'm glad they're safe. And I don't think this is going to help Putin any as he tries to maintain his hold in Russia because Russia the Russian people have been offended by this trade without question. Okay, so that was a lot of news about Russia and Ukraine. I appreciate your patience while you let me get through that. It was a big news, I guess, event, so to speak, in the last few days of several things dropping. So thanks for your patience on that. We'll get to the motivation and wisdom part. But before we do, let me drop this real quick. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please consider subscribing at a minimum, subscribe to the podcast through whatever channel you're listening to us on. Or if you can, please go to my Substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com, and subscribe there for email alerts. That would absolutely make my day. All of my podcasts are free, but if you really want to be a rock star and support what we're doing, you can sign up at my Substack for $5 a month. Not only will that help encourage and sustain what we're doing here, as well as hopefully make it better, but it will also get you the Tuesday post on Tuesday the Tuesday posts are available to everyone, but they're delayed by one day unless you're a paid subscriber. That way, it will encourage folks to hopefully help support what we're doing here if they can, but it also doesn't really penalize you if you can't make that $5 a month payment. At most, you're waiting just one extra day for the content. But again, if you can, please go to my Substack website and just sign up for email alerts. That would absolutely make my day. Also, if you're only listening through one of the podcast um, channels such as Apple Podcasts or one of the others. If you could drop a rating, that would be great. We're trying to get those built up a bit to, I think it needs to be about 40 or so, which will help the algorithms suggest it to others. So thanks so much for that as well. 
Now, for the motivation and wisdom, as I say every week, I'm just going to read these. I've got them all linked in the source notes, so if you want to go there and find some of these folks to follow on Twitter, many of them post things almost daily, so this is good stuff to feed your mind and help keep you motivated as you try to chase down your journeys or even just handle all the responsibilities that you may have as a parent or employee or manager. So let's just start with the first one. This one comes from uh, Albert Einstein. Quote, never give up on what you really want to do. The person with big dreams is more powerful than one with all the facts. I really like that. So never give up on what you really want to do. The person with big dreams is more powerful than one with all the facts. Yeah, that's pretty good. Next one. For true success, ask yourself these four questions. Why? Why not? Why not me? Why not now? It's pretty good. Again, it's why, why not, why not me, why not now? Next one. This is from uh, Picasso. All children are artists. The problem is how to remain an artist once they grow up. I like that one. Stay childlike. So, next one. No one is too busy. It's only a matter of priorities. That's another good one. Uh, on that note, um, the, in the great book from Jocko Willink, he's a Navy SEAL, retired. wish I could remember the name of it. But he talks a lot in about... Um, Basically, that the one time of day that you have that no one can take from you is early morning. And so he talks about that if you have a goal, wake up a little bit earlier, and eventually that'll help you go to bed just a tad earlier as well to work on your goal. But uh, it's, a, it's a good book. Actually, the book is so good, I paused the podcast and I looked it up. I'm mad at myself that I couldn't remember it because I read it about three or four times. The book is called Discipline Equals Freedom. Again, that's by Jocko Willink. I cannot highly recommend that enough for someone. That's probably one of... There's two books in my life that have absolutely changed my life. That is one of them, for sure. So Discipline Equals Freedom is the name of the book. If you haven't gotten it, you should. And you should get it yesterday. And you should read it multiple times. Very inspiring. It'll change your life. Okay, next one. You can totally do this. That one was pretty simple. But I read it, and I was like, man, so simple. And yet we should all tell ourselves that, but like, do any of us tell ourselves that? No, probably not, but you can totally do this. So there you go. Tell yourself that. Next one. Believe in yourself and stop trying to convince others. I did love that one when I first saw it, and I still love it just rereading it. We all, all get in trouble for that, don't we? Try to tell others about our dreams, and they look at you like you're crazy, or... And they tell you all the reasons they won't work. Like, why do we do that? Why do we subject ourselves to that? It's just stupid. Just do it. Don't worry about convincing others. Next, trust your intuition. It never lies. I like that one. I'm a pretty big believer in going with your gut. I, don't, I always tell people, you know, don't, don't be stupid. You know, you still want to do research and stuff, but your gut, man, it speaks to you a lot of times on things. And sometimes on dangerous things on what you shouldn't do so you should listen to your gut most of the time next one let your hustle be louder than your words that's another good one let your hustle be louder than your words so we all need to be working hard i always like to end with this one be the reason someone smiles be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people and with that 
Thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know just a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here, as well, a twice-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. It sounds cheesy, but every new subscriber I get, and I promise you, I get an email for each one, they really do help make my day. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. The View from the Front is a reader-supported publication. I still work a day job, although it is my dream to eventually do this uh, full-time with the author gig. But the best way to make this work sustainable and help improve it is with a paid subscription. But at the same time, free ones are appreciated too. Make sure to visit our website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email, and that'll make sure you don't ever miss one. And plus, it'll make my day when I get that email. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. Try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. Also, if you have a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, reach out to them. Finally, and this especially goes to all my awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, reach out to someone, please. Call that friend or family member. Do it for us all. We've already lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide. So I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath, breathe, and call a friend or family member or someone who can help. I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email, etc. I can't tell you how much those mean to me, and I love each and every one of you all. So please, join me again in our next episode. Stay safe until then. Thanks again. You guys are the best. As always, don't forget to check out my books. You can find all 11 of them on Amazon. I've written a CIA Marine Sniper series about a guy named Nick Woods. It's about a Marine Scout sniper who does, uh, let's just say, some secret missions for the uh, CIA. And he eventually gets sold out, has his life wrecked, and uh, he has to... He doesn't have to, I guess, but he decides to hunt down some folks who uh, may have sold him out and do something about it. Pretty awesome. That series has done the best of all of them. 
I've written four books in that series, and actually I'm almost done with the fifth book. I'm trying my best to wrap it up, but I'm also wanting to make sure it's really good because it's been a few years since I released a book in that series. So that book will be done soon. That'll be the fifth book. But I've also written a detective series about a prior force recon marine, and I've written two books in that one. That one's starting to take off. I've written a private investigator book about a former army ranger. I've written an action-packed western. I've even written a motivational slash biography book about President Obama. And I've even written a couple of realistic war novels. One's about World War II. It's called Soldier Own. And one is about Afghanistan, which is called Hill 406. And I've had quite a few veterans tell me that it is one of the realest war books they've ever read. So if you'd like to support me or check out those books, please do. Like I said, you can find all of them on Amazon. And with that, I'm out.